one of the things we're working towards as a church is when we get together to talk, to have our sermon portion, our goal is to be grounded in one passage and to work through sections of scripture and to allow the Bible to speak to us, not to put our own ideas on top of what's happening or to go around and pull cherry pick verses from here or there. We really want to let the word speak. And so sometimes that means you preach an uncomfortable sermon. In fact, that's going to happen a couple times in James. Somebody last week was like, hey, you were really like a Baptist last week. You know, you, uh, uh, you, you were all about like, um, you know, your, your worst moment of your life is now and eternity is amazing. And, you know, you need to get it together. And when you go through trials, you should have joy. And I was like, I'm not the Baptist. James is the Baptist, okay? Uh, I know that doesn't make sense because John's the Baptist in the Bible. But James... <laughs> James is the one who is hitting hard from the very get-go. There is no fluff in James's letter. You know, Paul is amazing at fluff. He's so good. He kind of warms everybody up. He's like, hey guys, next time. It was amazing seeing you last time. When I see you again, hopefully you can bring your, bring my cloak with you. Like, hey, can you send so-and-so? This is great. Like he, he does fluff in the beginning to kind of kind of warm people up. James doesn't do that. He just hits the ground running and he hits you in the mouth. Like, it's hard. It's tough. When you read through James, if you actually apply what James is saying, it's almost all difficult messages. These are messages for people who want to be discipled, who want to look more like Christ in their everyday life, who are willing to take on some of the topics that James, uh, James brings up. And he brings up from the very beginning just this idea that when we struggle, right, the temptation for us is to uh, blame God or to hold it against God. But in fact, when we actually struggle, it's a chance for God to use the things in our lives that aren't going the way we want them to, to actually grow us and change us. And it's an absolutely beautiful thing when a believer in Christ deals with a struggle and finds joy while they're in that trial. That, in fact, it's a very difficult thing, but God allows us to do it through the Holy Spirit and you know, and through looking at the, the example of Jesus, and we can actually live with joy in the midst of our trials and struggles. And there's nothing that draws people in more than seeing a person of faith kind of pers- persevere through a trial, holding on to that faith and letting that faith draw, you know, bring them through it. It's an incredibly amazing thing to see happen, and it draws people into a relationship with Christ when they see it. Okay, so that's how he starts his, his book. He's like, by the way, I'm, not, I'm just going to hit it. We're going to talk about struggle and trial and, you know, don't blame God and go to prayer. And the first thing you should do is ask for wisdom and you can do this. You can find joy in your trial and struggle. Then today we're looking at verses 12 through 18. And he, he deals with another type of trial, but this kind of trial is one that we bring on ourselves. So the first type of trial isn't one that we necessarily bring on ourselves. Sometimes God uses difficult times. He brings them into our life and he shapes us through them. Other times they happen to us and he still uses them to shape us, right? But then there are other kinds of trials that we bring into our own life because we are sinful, because we bring things into our own life that don't necessarily need to be there, because we make terrible choices, because we as humans are flawed. And this is what I want you to hear in this message. I'm not asking you to be perfect. In fact, we're very clear that this is a church where this is an imperfect church for imperfect people. We understand that everyone is going to be bringing baggage in with them. We're all going to be struggling with stuff. And we're not asking for perfection. And James is not saying that you should be perfect. But James is, is actually going to give us a posture that we should have towards the stuff that we bring upon ourselves. He's going to tell us that we should make war 
with the trials that we bring upon ourselves, with the sin that we have in our life, and that we can't ignore those things. We can't pretend like it's going to all be okay because sin never leads to everything being okay. It always leads to a really terrible place for us. And so he kind of, again, is going to challenge us very, very straightforwardly today to kind of look at where your life is and what kind of trials you were bringing upon yourself, okay? And so I'm going to jump straight into it here. And I want you to know, okay, so... In 1991, uh, there was a lawyer from New York City named Stephen Romer. Uh, Nobody would know who he is. Uh, He stole uh, $7.5 million from his clients and just one day up and disappeared. So there were people left holding the bag. Uh, He had raided trust funds and um, he had really uh, violated attorney-client privileges and uh, he, had, he had really violated the trust that his clients had in him. And he had basically emptied out bank accounts uh, from some of his clients and then found himself running away from the law. So he spent, um, I believe he's still in jail. They finally found him and, and put him in jail. And he violated the, the trust that he had with his people. Now, when you get to a place where you steal 7 or $8 million from people that trust you, how do you get to that place, right? So how do you get to a place where you uh, do something that egregious? I don't think any of us starts by saying, you know, he went to law school, he started a practice, he had a, a trust relationship with a lot of people to a point where all of a sudden his sin started having him draw out people's money. It's a process, and, and, and James is going to lay out what that process looks like. He's going to say, you don't just start by stealing money. You don't just start at the end. You start at the beginning, and then you work towards a place where you are now found out by your sin, and now you pay a price for your sin, okay? And so that's where James is starting the story. He's going to start by showing us, uh, kind of putting the bow on last week, and then kind of helping us understand how sin works, okay? So Just hold that story for a second in your mind. So he says, verse 12, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So he kind of helps us understand that trial was what we were talking about last week. That's the beginning section, the first 12 verses, talking about persevering under trial. And that word persevere is actually synonymous with the word steadfast. It's a kind of an old churchy word, steadfast, but the way that the word steadfast is usually used is generally in sports or in war, okay? That word specifically was used in, uh, in the um, original language to really refer to mostly sports and war. So you talk about a runner being steadfast or pers- persevering through difficulty and finishing. That's, I don't know anything about that. And so then, you know, it could also, they would also talk about this word steadfast as somebody who was in war, of actually like on the battlefield, being steadfast and pushing through until you have full victory, okay? And sometimes we get uncomfortable with that language, but that's what James is talking about. And I want you to understand when he talks about war, right? He uses this language to persevere or be steadfast. When he talks about war, he's, it's not like what we talk about today, okay? The war that James is talking about is a spiritual war. We're not warring against a specific type of person. We're not warring against a political ideology. We're not warring against a culture. Uh, often we're warring against a spiritual principality, right? A spiritual uh, overseer of, of evil, right? And that there is a spiritual war going on. If you don't think that there is a spiritual war going on, that is the beginning of a problem. 
You have to understand that there is a whole lot going on that you don't see. Right? We believe in a Holy Spirit, which is unseen, which moves in our lives. We better believe that there is a, a, a counter to that Holy Spirit that is also real. So, so James talks about persevering, being steadfast, being at war with right, uh, the other side. And he says, persevere under trial because having stood the test, in other words, having your faith tested in that trial, understanding that you're at war with something, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. He says, the motivation for us is not in the temporal, it is in the eternal. We give up and we struggle in the temporary, so we gain a crown in the eternal. Right? We, we are selfless now in the temporary, so that we can be selfish, living in God's presence for all of eternity. Right? Like You can be as selfish as you want when you receive the full measure of heaven. You could just, just bathe in it. Just love it. Just go for it. Indulge. You want to talk about indulge? You can indulge in heaven for eternity. But right now, we're called to be selfless and to give ourselves up and to, and to put ourselves in a position where we are persevering because we want the eternal, eternally significant thing. This is why we're serving the people around us because we want them to understand the freedom that they can have in Christ. This is why we're laying ourselves down because we want them to have the peace and the hope that comes with knowing Christ. That's the goal. That's the motivation. So he says, persevere so that you can have a crown someday. This is the motivation. James says it is eternal. And we give up the temporary for the eternal. That is something we're called to do all the time as Christians. Next verse, he says, be steadfast, persevere. Okay. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And so he says, God is not the one who brings about these kinds of trials in your life. It's actually coming from inside of us. It's our desire that begins to drag us away from the thing that God wants to do in our life. He said, essentially, we get into a situation where we blame God for our own sin. I know, no, that sounds like, oh, I don't blame God for my own sin. We all do this. Everybody does this. This is natural to being a human. We can go back and look at Adam, right? Adam, the first person to sin. What does he do? He eats. God comes and, and comes after him and says, Adam, what did you do? And what is the first thing that comes out of Adam's mouth? He says, and I know you'd probably say he blames Eve. He does, but he actually does even worse. He blames God. He says, this woman who you put here. What does Adam do? The first thing he does is blame everybody else, including God. And what James is saying is, that does not fly, dude. God is not the one tempting you. He's not the one bringing about sin in your life. You are the one bringing about sin in your life. Your own desires that you haven't laid down and haven't worked out and haven't found victory over are the things that drag you into sin. And I love that phrase, drag you into. It's like a, it's like a slow kind of movement away from what God wants. It's almost like, you know, think about another way to say that is to be lured into it. Right? You just think of a dumb fish where you throw the lure out there and you're just kind of tugging on the line, trying to get him to see it. And as soon as he grabs, you know, you, you got him. Satan wants to get you hooked. He wants to lure you into it. And he's going to use your own desires that you have, your own selfishness, your own sinfulness, and he's going to drag you away from what God wants. And we better believe that that's a thing. 
And we better be at war with our own sin. We better be aware of the fact that our selfishness is going to mislead us. That we are naturally going to find ourselves in sin and find ourselves blaming God. That we become amazing at justification when that sin is, is right there in front of us. We go, well, you know, what? no, it's not going to hurt anyone else. Right? Or we say, we say something like, uh, well, God wouldn't have given me the idea. Like, he wouldn't allow me to have that idea if he didn't. You know, we find ways to blame God for the things that we're struggling with. And it's our own, our own sinful desire that drags us away and drags us into those things and lures us into a place where now we are not effective for the kingdom. We're not receiving a crown someday. We're tied up and we're bound. We're no help to anyone unless we find freedom and victory from the sin that we have in our life. And don't think for a second that you can't be free of sin. Jesus came and died so that you could be free of the sin in your life. It doesn't mean you'll be perfect. We're not expecting perfection from anyone. But if we're not at war with our sin, we are fooling ourselves. We are fooling ourselves. If we think that that sin is not going to be full grown someday and not going to come home to roost, we are fooling ourselves. And he goes on. This is what he says. He says, um, uh, it's right here in front of me. I got it right here. It's right here. I know it is. I'm going to look at the screen. Then! <laughs> I should really make those bold or red or something. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Just think about that for a second. I think sometimes the biggest lie that we can believe is that you know, and I've heard this before. It's like, you know, one of those things you'll, you'll see people like post, they'll repost something and it'll be like, you know, Satan just wants to keep you busy and not focused on God. And I get it. I get where that's coming from. But that's a load. Satan wants to kill you. He wants to destroy you. He wants to steal from you. Jesus says that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy and I have come so that you would have full life. A life that is so full, it's incredible. That it's over full. It's joyful. It's full of peace. It's full of, uh, it's full of joy. Right? It's full of uh, all the things you would want this life to be. But Satan comes to steal and kill and destroy. He doesn't come to uh, keep you focused on yourself or on something else. Or just to you know, let you dabble and just not pay attention to God. He comes to bring about a full cycle of death and destruction in your life. If you don't think that is true, you, you need to be at war with your sin because you don't want to see your sin full grown. When we start a sin, we don't always think about the, the final uh, step of what that's going to mean to us, right? So like we, we say, oh, this is not going to hurt anybody or this is like not a big deal. Like what's the big deal? You know, no, we start at that place, right? But sin is when it's full grown gives birth to what? To death. And that is what the enemy wants to see in our lives, Right? We don't think about the final thing when we start, you know, we, so we're toying around with, with an affair with somebody. We don't think about the day we sign the divorce papers. Like we don't think about the, the man that's now in our house loving our wife and raising our kids. Like we don't think about the end of what we are starting to do. Right? We, we start to want to gossip. We don't think about the church that gets destroyed by it. You know, we, we, we start to want to lie or steal or, or, or cheat. Right? We don't think about the day the IRS comes knocking and wants to go through all that. He's like, ah, did you, what was this? What did you do here? Right? We don't think about the full-grown sin, but that full-grown sin brings about death, and it steals from you, and it takes away your hope, and it takes away your joy. And James is saying, you, 
You should deal with your sin when, before it is full grown. You should see it and be aware of it and deal with it immediately. That this is the beginning of death and destruction in your life. There is an enemy who wants to take you down. Who wants to see this death and destruction come into your life. Who wants to, to pull you away from Christ. And unless we are at war, persevering in faith, dealing with those things, being aware of them and and bringing them out into the open, and working through those things, and finding victory in Christ, and being free because we know Jesus, then we're going to be in a cycle that begins sin and ends in death. Death. And it begins in sin and it ends in death. Right? If we knew the first time we take that drink that we would be an alcoholic someday, we wouldn't want to do that. If we knew the first time that we lusted after that woman, that someday our marriage would be destroyed, we wouldn't want to do that. We have to think about sin when it's full grown. And understand that if we don't fight, if we don't struggle, if we don't war against it, it will bring about death, destruction. It will steal. And there are people in the Bible that you could say are good and bad examples of this, right? So you look at the person of Joseph, right? He was a, a slave living in the house and all of a sudden the, the uh, madam of the home comes to him and says, Hey, Joseph, let's get it on, right? His entire life, he's been, had nothing. And he's a slave and he should just be like, okay, whatever you want. I belong to you. But he says, no, he runs away, gets his jacket ripped off in the process. Better to leave something behind than to have a, and have a clear conscience, right? He, he runs. The minute sin enters in his life, the minute that temptation finds him, he turns the other way and he runs. And he doesn't think about what the consequences will be. He's okay with it because he knows he'll be pleasing God. He perseveres through that temptation by running away from it at the first chance he gets. Okay? You have other people in the Bible. David, right? David taking a stroll on his rooftop. Kind of looks out there. Hey, that's a pretty lady right there, right? I'm the king. I get what I want. Have her come on over. All of a sudden, the sin becomes full grown. What happens? Death. Death and destruction for a whole kingdom. Yeah, yeah, Uriah dies, and there's all kinds of consequences in David's family, in the kingdom of Israel. Yeah, we have this idea that David was this man after God's own heart, and there's redemption for anyone, no matter where you are in the cycle of sin. Maybe you're looking at death in the face because of some decisions that you made that were poor. David found himself there, and there was redemption for him, but his decision to give into sin brought death into the lives of hundreds, thousands, millions of people. I told you that story earlier on. Stephen Romer, right, 1991, New York City lawyer, stole $7.5 million. Well, there was a guy, just a guy, who was building his house at the time in upstate New York. A guy who owned his own little construction company. He had one client. It was Stephen Romer. He was putting together a couple million dollar house for him in this beautiful area of upstate New York. It was a place where they, they would get out of the city for the weekend and come up and and they had a contract, and the first percentage was paid, and they had basically this little construction company putting together this, in, this house, uh, had gotten almost all the way done. They were basically at the very finish line where they would get paid for all their work. And Stephen Romer disappears with $7.5 million of his client's money, and also holding the, leaving the little guy who was building his house holding the bag. Well, that little guy was my dad. So 1991... Our family, out of our house, bankrupt company. Like the, the destruction that comes from sin isn't just first generation, it's second generation, it's third generation, it's people who are connected sort of and kind of. My life was affected in a way that was irreversible because of the sin of a guy up the chain. 
You understand that sin brings about death. And maybe you escape some sort of, some sort of issue or some sort of, a, you know, maybe it doesn't come all the way up for you. You don't get found out exactly. Which, by the way, if you think you're not going to get found out, you always get found out. If there's one thing I could teach my kids, like, when you lie, I'm going to find out about it. When you cheat or steal or do something wrong, guess what? You're terrible at keeping it from me. I can read it on your face. I ask you one question, I know exactly what happened. Do we think we're hiding it from God? Not a chance. Not a chance. It brings about death. And it maybe doesn't bring about death for you, but it brings about death for people you're connected to and down the line. And it creates this cycle. Sin to death. Sin to death. There's an enemy who would love to see that cycle happen in your life. We have to get serious about our sin. And we have to war against it. James is saying it's not okay to just let this go. You think you're not hurting anyone else, you will. You will hurt someone else. Okay? You will hurt someone else. It will destroy your joy and steal your peace and leave you in a, in a vulnerable position. You know, when we teach our kids this, it's always better to come clean with it than to let me find out about it. My dad, he was like the ninja, the super ninja. He would sit me down and be like, listen, I know something. I'm going to give you one chance. You can confess it right now and I'll go easy on you. Right? And you know, as like a teenager or whatever, you're like, oh, what does he know? Which one of these five things should I confess right now? <laughs> you don't want to confess too much. <laughs> you don't want to tell him something he doesn't know, but you definitely want to deal with the thing he does know. So I got myself into trouble a couple times actually confessing something that wasn't even the thing we sat down to talk about. And he'd be like, well, that's really interesting. I was actually going to talk to you about this other thing. I'm like, oh, man, such a ninja. <laughs> Do you think you're fooling God? He already knows. The Bible tells us that, that God is, uh, is in pain when we are struggling in our sin. He would rather us sit down and confess and spill our heart out and, and throw ourselves at his mercy than anything else. He doesn't want this thing to be blocking the relationships that you have in your life. He doesn't want this thing to be blocking your relationship with God. Like he, doesn't, he doesn't want you to be sort of half-heartedly following him. He wants you to persevere in faith and deal with temptation in a way that allows you to have victory over the things that you are struggling with. And sometimes we get to a hopeless place where we feel like we cannot have victory. And I want you to understand that's the enemy whispering to you that God is not good enough or strong enough to be able to help you find victory. He's telling you he's not good because he's causing this thing in your life. And he's telling you he's not strong enough to, to see you through it and that you're always going to struggle with it. And he attacks your identity. James is saying, like, don't get into this cycle. Deal with temptation immediately. In fact, temptation is not sin. It's acting on the temptation. And so when we see that thing come into our lives, if we turn and run the way Joseph did, we find ourselves not in that cycle of sin and death. Right? We, the temptation comes, and then we have victory over it. This is the way God wants us to live. So if you're in that spot, by the way, let's talk, man. I'm your pastor. Tell me what's going on. Let me help you walk through it. Share it with somebody. When you expose stuff like that, you take all the power away. And you bring it to light, it's all gone. It doesn't have power over you anymore. When you name it, you say, I don't want this anymore in my life. I want Christ in my life instead of this. It just helps you move past it. James is saying we have to be at war and we've got to be steadfast and persevere through temptation. We cannot allow it to turn into sin and we cannot allow it to destroy our lives. 
If you don't want a war, I mean, do you think you're going to get away? you think you're going to be the one person who gets away with it? No. It always finds you. God wouldn't be good if he didn't let it find you. All right, so there's another verse here. I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> here we go. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. And so he, he kind of gives you a, a next step out of it. He's like, look, I want you to understand that sin comes from within. It's your desire that becomes full grown into sin and then into death, okay? But he's like, you can receive these incredible gifts from God who is not like anything else in the world. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You want to know what steadfastness is? Look at God. You want to understand how to persevere? Go to God. He's the one that you want. Now, I just want to take a, take a second and stop. Like, there is nothing else in our world that's not completely shifting under our feet all the time. Right? Like, just, just think about our world, right? Like, the language that we use, the, the political animosity that's going on in our world, the culture, it's shifting underneath us all the time. You will find yourself sometimes on the right side of the culture because of something you believe and sometimes on the wrong side of the culture uh, based on something you believe. But God doesn't change his ways don't change. His truth doesn't change. He's calling us to a specific standard. No matter what, everything else around us is changing. It doesn't matter. And here's, here's the thing. Okay, so um, here's a good example of it. If you were to, to have a conversation with somebody in our culture, and you talked about, hey, you know, this is somebody who's not a Christian. They want to know, how, what does Christ think about my relationship with my dad? I've been estranged for him for, you know, 20 years. And it's a terrible, terrible relationship. We talk about forgiveness. And we'd be like, look, man, Jesus t tells us to forgive even when we've been wrong. Even our enemies, he tells us to forgive. It'd be a beautiful thing. People here would be like, wow, that's beautiful. If I could actually have that, that'd be beautiful. Then they ask you, what am I supposed to do with my girlfriend who I'm, who I'm sleeping with? What, what should I be doing? And we say, hey, here's God's standard. He, he really, he sets out this idea that marriage is the place that this shouldn't be happening. Right? And so this is what he's calling us to. They'd be like, you're crazy. I can't do that. No way. So culture in our culture would say, It's crazy. It's crazy to, to, to call somebody to a, a sexual standard that God has set out for us. But not so crazy to forgive somebody, right? Now, you go to the Middle East. What, the culture there, you have a conversation with somebody. You go, hey, you, you live in, we want you to live with just a man and a woman in a relationship for God, that God wants to ordain. That says, you know, they'd be like, that's beautiful. We agree with that. Our culture says we should do that, right? But then you say like, hey, forgiveness, 70 times 7, right? Like, you got to forgive your enemy. They'd be like, that's weakness. Right? Whatever culture you live in is going to have completely different standards. But I want you to understand the God that we serve is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. His truth is the same. His standard is the same. Sometimes we come against culture. Other times we're in step with culture and it doesn't matter. God has called us to a certain standard. He says, put your faith and trust in me and my standard and live the way I'm calling you to. Don't worry about what your culture says. It shifts all over the place. Follow a God who doesn't shift. Follow a God who's the same, always, who's calling us into this relationship. And, and he's basically saying, look, you can, you can bank on me. You can build your life around my truth, right? There are things in this world that will not line up with the way that God has called us to live, and we're still called to do it. Sometimes we're in step with culture. Sometimes we're out of step with culture. Don't worry about everything else shifting around you. God is the one who gives good gifts, and he's the one that we can trust in. He is the one who creates Satan wants to take his creation and he wants to mar it and he wants to twist it and he wants to change it. Satan doesn't create anything. Satan creates destruction. He creates chaos. 
He creates, you know, something out of what God has created and tries to, to change it and mar it and hurt it and, and destroy it. And he says, like, you got to go to God. He's the place where you're going to find these good gifts. And he's the same yesterday, today, tomorrow. He doesn't change, like, the shifting shadows of the culture that you live in. He's not something that is always changing around you. He is something strong that you can build your life on. He is good. Satan is the one who distorts. In the last verse, he says, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits for all he created. He says, look, uh, this was God's plan all along. I mean, you could follow it through the whole Bible. The idea in the Old Testament was they took the Jews and set them apart from the culture so that they would look different to the world and people would be like, what is going on with those people? They don't even have a king. They're the ones that serve. The, they, they're, you know, God keeps stepping in for them and doing stuff. Let's figure out what's going on with them. And they were supposed to be um, priests to the nations, sharing God's love to everyone, helping them understand who he was. And then that didn't really work out so well. And he calls us to do the same thing. He's created the church now to be set apart, to be something different. To, there should be a standard of love that happens here and a standard of truth that happens here and a standard of grace that happens here and a standard of peace and love and openness when we receive people from the world and we point them towards what God is calling them to do, we give them the truth of the gospel. That's what we're called to do. He's like, you are a, a first fruits. Right? I created you to show the rest of the world. You're essentially an offering to the world. I want you to draw in the world to this message that they can be free. That they can have reconciliation with God. That they can find peace. That they can have hope. That they can have joy. That this is what it looks like to be in relationship with God. This is what I'm calling you to do. This is your job, right? So we, you know, remember who he's writing to. He's writing to the, the church, the Jews who are scattered throughout the area, who are all under persecution. And he's basically saying, look, you have been called into something here. And I want you to understand your place in all of this. As you live with the gospel front and center, and as you start to do the things that God has called you to do, and you start to war against your sin and find freedom and joy, and you start to throw away the cultural idea of how you should live and you start to live the way that God has called you to live, that there will be something that draws people into that. They'll be like, I don't know what's, what it is about that church, but I love it. I don't know why people seem friendly. It seems like the kind of place that loves me. I don't really get it. I'm not really sure. That, that guy's preaching a hard word, man. He's, he's telling me I got sin. He's telling me like I'm a, I got to fight against this, but, but there's something about that church I want to be part of. There's something real happening there. Like that's what is at stake if we don't fight our sin, if we allow temptation to overcome us, if we don't find freedom, if we don't have joy and peace and hope in our lives because of our, our place with Christ, that's not something that's going to draw anyone in. It's when we start living in freedom and in victory and we start eradicating the sin in our life and we start taking it seriously and fighting it and not letting us get into this death spiral with it. That's when people get drawn in. That's when God's kingdom starts to enlarge. That's when the eternally significant things start to happen. The crown that we want, the crown that we strive for, the eternity of people outside of this church who don't know Jesus. That's what's at stake. Our families are at stake. Our relationships are at stake. The, the lost outside of our doors are at stake. The question is, will we persevere? Will we war with our sin? Will we do what God has called us to do? I realize this is kind of a tough message. So here's how I want to apply this. I want you to, as Paul would say, test yourself. Take a look. 
what's going on here? Be real. Is there something in here that I haven't let see the light of day for a long time? Is there something I'm really finding myself underwater in the struggle with? That I feel like I'm outside of where God wants me to be? If that is the case, tell someone. Share that with someone. Walk through some healing. Find yourself in Christ. War with that sin. Don't let it take you. Because we need you. The church needs you. The world needs to see healthy Christians living this thing out. So I want, to, I want everyone to rise. We're going to close right here.